The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. From Spirituality and Health magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Dr. Sunita Puri is an assistant professor of clinical medicine at the University of Southern California and the medical director of palliative medicine at Keck Hospital and the Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center. Her new book is called That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour, and a review of the book appears in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Sunita Puri, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is going to be really interesting, I think, for, for I know for me, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm sure for our listeners as well, because this is a very powerful book. I, I read the book, but I also read some reviews, and I was struck by the reviews. They tend to comment, as, as always positively, about the book in general, but about the way you write and the powerful your powerful use of language, but also oh, sort of the stark way you write. I'm just going to quote for a second from our own reviewer in Spirituality and Health magazine, Catherine Wagner, who called your use of the language honest and brutal. <laughs> brutal. I thought, wow, that's pretty intense. So I'm curious as to why that is. So let me tell you what I think is going on and why people think it's honest and brutal. And let me and let me then give me your take on it. So I think that our society, and maybe all societies, but certainly contemporary American society, is still trapped in what Ernest Becker called decades ago, the denial of death. Yes. Okay, so I'll let you take it from there. Well, I think you're absolutely right that sometimes when we avoid a subject, so much that even in our medical training, the language about talking about mortality and death is not given to us, then sometimes patients and families perceive any discussion of such a taboo topic as both honest and brutal because we avoid it so much. And we avoid it because... I think we avoid it for a number of complex reasons. Death certainly invokes fear and anxiety in people, which is very understandable because it's an unknown. 
you know, we fear the pain and suffering that will might come with the dying process. We fear leaving those who we're attached to, who we love very much. And we don't know what may or may not await us after we leave our mortal bodies. And so I think a lot of fear and anxiety prompts a sense of avoidance rather than reflection. Yeah, I would think, and I'm, this is, you know, I'm asking you, I would think that reflecting on your mortality would enrich your, your life as opposed to running away from it and having, because it's so obvious that we die and everybody dies and everything dies. It's so obvious that you, you can, you can't really run away from it. So, uh, you know, if, if we would embrace it and we would reflect on it, you know, regularly, it, it could have a palliative effect on our lives, I would think. Truly, yes. And I think sometimes people wonder if reflecting on mortality might actually make them die sooner. And I hear this from patients and families who I have the enormous privilege of talking to about what they want for themselves if they get sicker. And some, I've, I've heard fairly often that people fear that bringing up that subject may make their health worse. And I actually think it's the sort of thing where we yoke so much anxiety and avoidance and fear on the concept of death that sometimes when we drag what we are most afraid of out of the shadows and into the light, perhaps it won't actually be that scary. Yeah, that's. I, I mean, I agree with that. I think that I think you're right about that. The book that uh, you know, the the uh, that good night is both memoir and sort of philosophical, maybe even scientific examination of this topic. And in the memoir part of the book, you have this great. I, I it just struck me. You have this photograph that's from the 1980s of your of your dad, and he's wearing a shirt that your mother gave him that advertised a, I think it's a muscle relaxant called Uh uh, Tracrium. Yeah. And the shirt says, I'm in control, colon, Tracrium. Yes. And I was wondering if that really speaks to the thing we've been talking about, that everyone wants to be in control, and death says, no, you're not. That is such a great insight, Rabbi. I had actually, no one has brought that up to me. And I think I certainly didn't put that in there to be metaphoric. It literally in half the photos we have from the 80s, my dad is wearing that shirt. (laughs) Um, It's so remarkable. I'm like, didn't you have any other clothes? But he's always wearing the shirt. And I think you're absolutely right that What we seek in our society is personal control over a lot of things, be it resisting aging, be it our weight, be it the sort of life we want to have for ourselves. And that is completely understandable. But when we try to control our bodies and we try to control death, especially if we try to use medicine to postpone it at all costs, What we actually incur is quite a bit of suffering because we are resisting what is. And that's a very kind of a Buddhist thing to say, that what is, is something we must accept. And to resist it is what causes a tremendous amount of suffering. Yeah, reality is reality. Exactly. Um, I'm not quoting Byron Katie, but she says something like this. You you can always 
oh, fight reality, and but you'll and you and you will lose, but only a hundred percent of the time. You know, reality always wins. So you mentioned Buddhism, but your family is Hindu. Yes. And we were raised because in the Punjab region that my parents are both from, Sikhism and Hinduism are often both practiced in a number of households. So those were both philosophies that I was really exposed to as a child. All right. So I didn't realize that there was such a, that they would blend that way. I mean, it's, it's not that your mom was one and your dad was the other. It was just, it's in the culture, the two of them together. Yes, because the, the Punjab region in India is where is the birthplace of Sikhism. And it's also a place where many Hindus who live there go to Sikh temples. And there's just a beautiful intermingling of cultures and religions there. And we're certainly united by a common language. Yeah, one of my trips to India, I spent some time with a at a Sikh temple with studying Guru Nanak and uh, uh-huh. you know all all of that. It's very, it's fascinating. I mean, India is one of my favorite places, so everything about India fascinates me. Uh, do you consider yourself a Hindu now? I consider myself Hindu, but I also very much practice and say Sikh prayers. Mm-hmm. And I think of the two and of Buddhism as all really beautifully intertwined religions that are distinct, but deeply interconnected with each other historically and in their practice. Well, all, all three have India as their, their place of origin. Their birthplace, yeah. So they're all, they're all part of your heritage. So... So this is something you say, I'm quoting you from the book, that your dad taught you. So I'm quoting you, quoting your dad. Uh, This is the quote, that the body is temporary and it will always change no matter how much we try to stop it. That soul, the spirit within the body, makes us who we are. So let me try that again. That soul, the spirit within the body, makes us who we are. You then say, sort of commenting on your dad, Living well would necessitate remembering what truly endures, the soul, and what doesn't, the body. So do you, do you see that split? I mean, I mean it's very dualistic, uh, soul and, and you know, matter and, and spirit, soul and body. Um, in Hinduism, I mean, there, is, there are Hindu denominations, I guess you'd say, Hindu, Hindu philosophies that do make a split between the body and the spirit. Uh, my own experience with Hinduism is through Ramakrishna and, and the Vedanta societies. And, and there they don't. Non-dual Hinduism, non, you know, Advaita Vedanta is all about the soul and the body are really manifesting of the singular Brahman. So anyway, I'm, I'm getting little in the weeds here. But so, so how do you understand this soul-body distinction? So I think, you know, I have always believed a line from the Gita, which goes as follows. The soul wears the body like a cloth and discards it at the time of death. And I love that line. I think that it beautifully encapsulates a very nuanced philosophy about what is mortal and what is immortal. And that philosophy in the Gita is really very reassuring to Arjuna, who is, of course, facing a very important battle, which is really a battle of virtue versus the non-virtuous. And Krishna tells him this to remind him that what you see before you, all things that you can sense with your senses 
are ultimately not real. What is real is beyond this world. It's something you can't necessarily see, but it is something that is the very essence of you. And I will say this too, that in a number of my meetings with families, especially when they tell me my, you know, my loved one is a fighter and he's going to fight this at all costs. They'll generally say things like that when somebody's actually doing very poorly in an ICU setting, for example. And one of the things I have found very powerful, if they are open to it, is to invite the concept of duality into that conversation and to say, the person himself may be a fighter, but the body reaches its limits. What the body can fight and withstand is ultimately very different from what the spirit in this human being can fight and withstand. And more often than not, helping people to see that distinction actually helps them to see that the dying process has nothing to do with how hard someone is fighting and everything to do with the temporal nature of our bodies. And I get that from the Gita. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, and, and, and your dad gave you the Gita. I want to I want to stick with this, but I uh, we talked about this before we we came. You know, we went live here, and I just want I know, our listeners to to know which edition of the Gita that that you love. So your dad gave you the one that that he felt was the best, and you've said to me before the show that you also love this one and have it on your bedside all the time. So so tell us uh, the translation so everyone who anyone who wants to look it up can do that. Certainly. So it's called the Bhagavad Gita, a walkthrough for Westerners. And it's by Jack Hawley, which is spelled H-A-W-L-E-Y. And I'd read a number of other translations of the Gita, but this one is just, it's it's almost like a deceptively simple um, and very clear translation of the major concepts of the Gita. And I just think it's It's lyrical and elegant, and it still maintains the soul of the text. 
And I, so many pages of it are dog-eared and underlined, and it is always right next to my bedside. I'll open it up to a random page at night and just trust that whatever I've opened it up to is something I need to read. Wow, that's that's really fascinating. I, it's one of my favorite books. I've taught it many times in the university and on my retreats. We use it a lot. So I want to just go into this a little bit more without hopefully without losing our audience. But in 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 the Gita in chapter eleven, you know, Krishna reveals his true nature to his true essence to Arjuna, and what Arjuna sees is this is sort of a quote. Um, he says, I see you everywhere with infinite form, with many arms. It's sort of everything is in Krishna, and Krishna is in everything, and Krishna is everything. So even, even this, this body-mind, this, yeah, this body-soul split is, in a sense, not exactly uh, permanent, meaning, meaning that the body is no less divine than the soul, but the body is a temporary expression. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. The body is no less an expression of of the yeah of the divine of God than the soul is, but the body uh, changes, and and the soul Atman, I guess, does not. Is that sort of where you're coming from? Yes, and I think you know in our culture even, and we hear this a lot, especially for women who struggle with self-image and eating issues. That there's a kind of a constant reminder that how you look. And what your body looks like is not who you are. And I think that in and of itself is an expression of that sort of dualism, that the body is sacred. It is given to us so that we may be on this earth to contribute and to learn the lessons spiritually that we need to learn. But it is not ultimately an expression of who we really are or our self-worth. What an interesting, you know, for all the years I've, I've worked with this text, it never occurred to me to use it in the context of, of body image. And that's not really who you are. That's, that's very interesting. I'm going to ask you an odd question as much for putting it to you as much as to our listeners who might be interested in, in pursuing the Gita a little bit. Are you familiar with the movie Bagger Vance? I am not. It keeps popping up on my Netflix suggested for you though. Yes. Well, you should definitely watch. And I would suggest anyone who's listening, if you haven't seen it, Watch Bagger Vance, the movie Bagger Vance with Will Smith as the lead character. Bagger Vance is a pop culture retelling of the Bhagavad Gita. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, Bagger Vance is uh, Bhagavan, Lord. So, uh, and the, the hero of the Gita is Arjuna. And in the movie, the hero of the movie is a guy whose first name is just the letter R and his last name is Juna. So it's this retelling of the Gita using golf, the game of golf, as the metaphor for the battle that's about to ensue in the Gita itself. So it is absolutely, you know, I love Will Smith. I love movies. If, if uh, you haven't seen it or if, if our listeners haven't seen it, please go, go watch Bagger Vance. If you need help linking it, because in all its different facets, to the Bhagavad Gita, there's a, a book that goes with it called Gita on the Green. That shows you how the movie, um, how the makers of the movie took pieces from, t- took the Bhagavad Gita and turned it into a golf, a, a romantic golf 
romantic drama. I mean, it's just a great, it's just a great movie. That's incredible. I'm totally going to watch it. Okay. So you got, definitely got something <laughs> from this interview as we got, we got the translation of the Gita to read and you got a movie to watch. So that's, that's a, that's, that's a good exchange. Let me ask you about how your patients respond to that. I mean, in, in your book, you say that this is this very notion you know, and about, about the soul wearing the body like a cloth speaks to you personally, but you also say that you share it with your, your patients. Do they, do they get it? Do they respond well to that notion? So I'm very selective on who I bring it up with because in certain very complex dynamics in family meetings or discussions with patients about really personal subjects like end of life, I will, it's hard to describe. I almost get an instinct about who I can share that with and who I can't. And it's an instinct that I've had to kind of refine in my years of doing this work. Um, but when I bring it up, I will say, Rabbi, that I very often, I would say I could count on one hand the number of times that it has not helped a conversation. It has uh -huh. helped immensely. When people can see that the body is not who we are, and that sometimes even if we want to live and we have this strong will and we're willing to do anything, sometimes the body is too sick for more chemotherapy or too frail to go to surgery. And to do those things would push the body over its limits. Wow. So that, that's interesting. And I think it's just a different way of helping people to understand that medicine can do everything in its power. And sometimes we still can't fix a very difficult situation. So when a fix is not possible, what is the most compassionate and kind sort of care we can give you to really minimize your suffering and maximize your dignity. Wow. That, that's really fascinating. I, we are just about out of time, and I want to close the show uh, with, with you reading from the book. And, and if, at the end of the part I want you to read, if you want to add something, that's fine. But it really does bring everything together that we've been talking about, and we could just end it there. It's, it's in the chapter called The Grip of Life. So on the bottom of 269 to the end of the chapter, I think people would love to hear this, especially in your voice. Thank you. So just to give the reader a little context, the end of this chapter is really me reflecting on my own life, having seen so many patients struggle with the end of their lives. I didn't want the sum total of my life to be only a collection of my worldly achievements, boxes of degrees, and lists of patients I'd treated. I thought of what I had pushed off or considered unimportant, the things I promised myself I'd do when I quote-unquote had the time. I'd called the friend I had been meaning to call for the past year since I moved to L.A. I'd take my mother to the beach in Santa Barbara. I'd take a pottery class. I'd write regularly to my uncles in Mumbai. I'd learn to cook Thai food. I'd adopt a puppy. I'd deal with my fear of bugs and go camping. These all seemed like such cheesy wishes as I thought about them. But these were the things I didn't want to leave my life without doing. 
which meant they weren't small things. That night was the beginning of a conversation I continue to have with myself, especially in the moments when the wrong parts of my life feel big and cast shadows over the smaller things. Those are the times I return to my copy of the Gita, having stumbled across a passage that perfectly captured how the fact of death has taught me to live differently. Quote, no matter how strongly you ascribe to the universal delusion that you can avoid pain and only have pleasure in this life, which is utterly impossible, sooner or later you must confront the fact of your inevitable aging and eventual death. Therefore, because death stirs people to seek answers to important spiritual questions, it becomes the greatest servant of humanity rather than its most feared enemy, end quote. And there it was, the life lesson and the death lesson, vast and small, interlinked, infinity in a seashell. Our guest today, Dr. Sunita Puri, is the author of That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour. A review of the book appears in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Sunita Puri, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been an honor. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. Our producer is Ezra Baker, and our executive producer is Ben Nussbaum. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Liz Winter, and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.